Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to episode number 202 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of the financial markets and financial planning. Mark is busy with his uh, chief investment officer responsibilities at our firm, Jessup Wealth Management. So we have Aaron Kramer, CFP, wealth advisor. Um, I can keep going on describing him. Uh, with our firm filling in, Aaron, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be back. Bourbon connoisseur. Um, so um, if those on video can see me wearing red today, Aaron, the Miami Heat are playing tonight. They are up in the series um, against the Boston Celtics, three to one. They go back to Boston and my um, non-business prediction, purely sports, they're going to close it out tonight. I like it. I like it. I thought they were going to sweep them, to be honest with you. I did too. <laughs> I did too. And I will note that of any uh, team in the East, the Knicks gave them the most trouble. All right. I will note well, that. That's your team. That's my team. <laughs> so uh, before we begin, as always, I'm going to start uh, to recap pricing and performance for the major indices uh, that we track, Aaron, for all of our listeners and viewers. These numbers are as of the close of May 24th yesterday, and this data is from Ycharts. S&P 500 index for the month down 1.3%. Year-to-date up 7.2%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average for the month down 3.8%, and year-to-date down 1.0% even. NASDAQ Composite, 2.1% up for the month, and up 19.3% year-to-date. iShares Russell 2000 ETF, which tracks <coughs> excuse me, small caps, up 20 basis points for the month at 0.2%, and for the year up 70 basis points, or 0.7%. The Vanguard FTSE All World X United States ETF, I always love saying that, <laughs> down 2.5% and year-to-date up 5.9%. Uh, Aaron, transition over to Treasuries, three-month T-bill, and we're going to talk about this why yeah. in a second, is elevated at 5.37%, the two-year Treasury rate at 4.31%, and the 10-year rate is currently sitting at 373 Now. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners, especially our regular listeners, are going to see that three-month rate, and they're going to be like, wow, it's a little elevated to where it's been over the last couple of months. Yes, it is. And that kind of goes into our primary big news and current events. Mm -hmm. What's all about right now, Aaron? Debt ceiling. It's all about debt ceiling. And, you know, the stock market up until this week has been pretty much ignoring it. Right. Right? Would you agree with yeah, that? For the most part. And the bond market has not... Mm -hmm. and especially the short end of the curve. And I will define that statement as zero to three months out. Right. Okay. So it's pretty, pretty inverted right now, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. And so, um, you know, just to kind of say this, is there a, uh, a threat of a technical default? Yes. But I'm still in this camp that I think it's just a lot of noise, political posturing, you got a game of political chicken right. and you got two cars coming at each other and you know the other wants to kind of claim victory for their party i think you kind of let that play out uh but i think when it comes to like the stock market i'm not as concerned yeah, about short term this. noise is a good way of saying right it? Exactly. short term noise is a good way of saying it yeah so yeah i completely agree i think it would be extremely unprecedented for the debt ceiling to not get raised so yes. i think it's like you said a lot of posturing 
each side wants their things to get done, yep. they're probably going to have to meet somewhere in the middle. That's right. <laughs> so I don't think there's anything else to talk about no, on that, on that side. We'll debrief our listeners and viewers kind of what ends up happening. But, you know, the most likely is what you said. They meet in the middle, they raise the debt ceiling, and we move on and we do this dance again in X amount of time. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so uh, next, let's transition to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, Mr. Kramer, you're going to start, sir. Perfect. Yeah, I will kick it off. Um, first tweet I have is from Bespoke. Um, I know you and I both love their... Love Bespoke. I use them constantly. So this is from um, May 21st. And the tweet is uh, titled, Individual Investor Sentiment um, Continues to be Down in the Dumps. So mm, This is going to be interesting. I, Keep going. I'm, this I'm, is I'm intrigued. very interesting to me. So there's two charts. It's a rolling 52-week average of um, two individual investor sentiments. One is AAII, and one is the Yale one-year investor confidence. So um, these are at... The, the AAII bullish sentiment is at the lowest level since about 1988, 89, mm. which to me, what, what was, what happened then? Black Monday, right? Yeah. In the 87, right? Yeah. So for me, this is a kind of a contrarian indicator. I think you would agree. Absolutely. <laughs> as money starts to come back off the sidelines, I think this is a this is in my world, this is a positive thing for the market to see sentiment this low. Cause kind of when we see any Joe Schmo on the street, once they start to feel like it's really, really bad. Yeah. I know everyone probably, every advisor probably has that one client that says, Hey, now's the time to get out. That's, That's the canary the in the coal mine. <laughs> it's the time to get in. That's right? the canary. You know, when I see this, um, well, my first response is for all of our viewers and listeners, you can Google search, um, the AAII sentiment uh, index, and they publish all this data mm -hmm. on their website. It's yep. like the American Association. Association Individual Investors. Exactly. So uh, you can get this data. I know that Jenna's going to put the chart up for our YouTube viewers, and this is on our show notes and all of our social media sites. But I'm going to mimic what you said, but say it in my own words. Yeah. You know, when you see sentiment this poor, in my experience, it tends to reflect someone's equity positioning mm -hmm. within their portfolio. So what do I mean by that? If an individual investor sentiment is this bad, typically they're not going to be overweight stocks within their portfolio. Exactly. Right. Good way of saying it. Mm -hmm. So what could happen the next couple of years is if earnings stay resilient, and I'm just going to be very direct and I'm going to say this. The Bears have had the perfect news flow year to date. And oh, they yeah. not only fumbled the ball, <laughs> but you've had the NASDAQ pick up the ball, score a touchdown, and then they scored an extra they, two points. They got an interception after that. And then they got an interception <laughs> after that. You know, so it's interesting, and that says something. Now, I want to overlay this. Uh, several weeks ago in the podcast, I had a piece, Aaron, about mutual fund manager sentiment. And it was a Bank yes. of America sentiment survey. And I know you, you saw I've this chart. Yeah. That's also showing pessimism on equity allocations to levels we haven't seen since 08 and 09. Mm -hmm. So my message is this, at some point, you're going to see these positionings, this sentiment reverse. It's gonna unwind. It's gonna unwind. And then now you got a lot of corporations who are massively buying back their own stock, and it could set up for a melt-up the next couple of years. Absolutely. Because no one's talking about this right now. Right. right. Everyone's talking about how 
you know, is the Fed going to get inflation under control? What's going to happen with this debt ceiling? When's going to Fed start lowering interest rates? How sluggish is the economy going to be in the second half of the year? We're going to have a recession, et cetera, right. et cetera. It's all the negative news flows. But right? no one's talking about how profitable companies are mm -hmm. in comparison to a year or two ago. Absolutely. And how much cash there is on the sidelines. And that the, the, um, the state of corporate balance sheets today compared to history. They're very clean. This is why people didn't listen to our podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. All, All right. right. Sorry about we went, on a, we went on a rant there. It's okay. Okay. Um, next tweet. I think this will only be quicker. That's All right. Okay. Let's go. Um, this is again from Bespoke. Uh, continue to love their stuff. This is on uh, May 19th, and the headline says uh, Japan's Nike 225 broke out to a new multi decade high this week, hitting its highest level since 1990. Man, that, that index, it's wow. just been terrible, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's such a, just a major run in the 80s. And I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, I was young at the time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like the, um, the Japanese were buying everything in Hawaii. I mean, they had right. money out the wazoo. And, I mean, it's taken 30-plus years to get above 1990 levels, and they're still 20% off the highs. So That's just crazy could, to me. We could talk all day about Japan and do a case study on it, but I just kind of wanted to highlight that. That it's, it's, We haven't heard that one in a while. We haven't. It's, um, it's the last seven, eight years, it's uh, done much better. It kind of looks like it bottomed, in my opinion, and sure. might be headed in the right direction. Yeah. I wouldn't, personally, wouldn't put a lot of weight on that. Sure. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see that it is finally starting to recover. I'm glad you brought this up because I haven't, I haven't, I haven't looked, looked at I haven't it. Looked yeah. this in a long yeah. time. It's an interesting one. Okay. All right. Um, I got two more things for you. They are going to be articles from advisor perspectives. There's some, um, some, some writers that contribute to advisor perspectives. And the first one is from May 19th as well. And it's titled Policy and Tax Changes Impacting High Net Worth Clients in 2023. Okay. And it's by uh, Wola Odenaren. I'm sure I butchered his name, so I apologize. I think that. you gave it a fair shot there. I gave it a good try. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's a pretty quick article. It's, it's a good one. It talks about three, four things on for 2023 for high net worth clients to be mindful of. So uh, the first is the Secure Act 2.0. So I know Taylor and I, we did a long podcast and kind of walked through basically 90% of things on the Secure Act sure. 2.0. Um, but he highlights that um, high net worth uh, individuals can benefit from RMDs being raised to 73 years old, right? So that's another positive thing. It allows clients more time to convert tax-deferred assets to tax-free, like Roth. Mm -hmm. And um, he also highlights that the RMD age will jump to 75 years old in uh, 2033, which again, I think is makes sense for our uh, people living longer. Absolutely. It's a great thing. Absolutely. Um, so it also goes on to say if the People clients, are working longer, too. Yeah, absolutely. They... they Plenty of people working into their mid-70s nowadays. We're seeing that in our um, practice. Whether it's by choice or forced to, either way, I think it's uh, these are positive things for, uh, for legislation, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the other Secure Act 2.0 change that he highlights is, for high net worth clients is to take advantage of the penalty-free rollovers from a 529 to a Roth IRA. Bingo. So this is huge because you can do 35000 in a rollover to... Um, a Roth IRA. So in essence, you don't use it. Mm -hmm. You can, you roll, can roll it over to a Roth and then it can be used to fund retirement instead of education, which that's one of my favorite pieces of change from the Secure Act because 529s are fantastic. Not everybody goes to college. Not everybody 
goes to a trade school where you can spend this money on. So I think it's a really nice thing to keep this money tax free sure. and tax advantage. So uh, it's a it's an interesting one, and I'm glad he brings that point up. A um, couple other things in the article is rising interest rates impact on charitable remainder trusts. So um, charitable remainder trusts um, essentially is where you give a lump sum to a charity irrevocably an account, irrevocably and you get income off of this for the rest of your life and the remainder goes to the charity so that when you die right? then everything goes whatever's residual in that account lump sum goes to the named charity or charities exactly so the benefit now is there's actual yield in the in the market so one positive to higher rates is there's yield so these strategies can be a little bit more enticing right now because of higher interest rates. So you can actually get more income off of that and still live, leave what's called the principal to the charity at the end when you pass. So um, just something to be mindful of. I don't see a whole lot of these anymore, um, but it's it's interesting to, to see that they might gain some traction in the, in the next few years or short term. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, the last thing is the 2025 sunset of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So oh, this boy. obviously hasn't happened yet. But one thing I think we're going to really see short term is life insurance coming back into vogue. And he mentions yes, that as well. It will. So with the lifetime gift exemption and estate tax exemption being right around just under 13 million right now per spouse, per person. Um, a lot of people haven't had to worry about um, estate taxes or their lifetime gift exemption. Correct. But with that sunsetting in 25, there's going to be a lot more people that it's going to be a concern. And what's it reverting back to? So it's reverting back to pre-2017 levels, which was around 5 million. 5 mil, yeah. So my guess is index for inflation 6 to 7 okay. million is my guess. Yep. Um, maybe slightly lower than that, but that's my guess. And, you know, I know that that seems like a large number. But if but you add up, I, I'm, steal, I'm stealing your thunder, no, please, but if you add ahead. up land, homes, all accounts, all that life stuff. Insurance life in your, insurance in your name. Absolutely. You know, it, so it, that stuff adds up just you get there so quick. Quicker than you think. Yeah. So and what happens if you're above it? If you're above it, you are going to pay estate taxes on any amount above. Currently, it's the $13 million, but say it's above $5 million, it's a 40% tax. So it's a massive tax rate. And that's nine months after you pass. Mm -hmm. The government so. doesn't want gold. They don't want Apple stock. Right. They don't want the NASDAQ composite. They don't want your house. They don't want your house. <laughs> what do they want? Cash. Cash. Cold hard cash. So cash. I think that's where we're going to see a lot of, in my personal opinion, you're going to see the, the term ILET or irrevocable life insurance trust come back into vogue. Yes. Um, so I think that's um, something to be mindful of, especially over the next two years. I think people will probably start thinking about this again, and you might see an influx of those policies um, the next couple of years. I would agree. So. I would agree. Um, I thought that was a pretty pretty good article. Um, not a ton of major tax changes for 2023. Again, those are coming in 25. So, Got it. Um, I think it's prudent to kind of be prepared for the next two years for that. Got it. Okay. All right. I have one more article for you, and then I will turn it over to you. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so this article, again, it's from Advisor Perspectives. It's um, by Jennifer Nash on um, May 23rd. And it's titled The Economy That Matters, Most Recent Housing Market Trends. So I just think it's interesting to kind of follow the housing market, see what's going on, what the trends are in existing home sales, building starts, new starts, all that stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so um, 
First one is existing home sales. So she says, existing home sales retreated for the second straight month in April, slowing the momentum from a few months before. The existing home inventory is currently extremely limited. Home buyers are reluctant to deal with the prevailing high mortgage rates in the market. As a result, existing home sales fell 3.4% in April to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 4.28 million units. So uh, the latest data came in below expectations of a 0.1% month over month increase to uh, 4.3 million units, okay? So pretty much there's not a lot of existing home sales available. Um, not a lot there, of inventory. Not a lot of inventory at all. And if you look at a chart um, going back over, uh, she has a chart in here of existing home sales. It's near low levels of, not quite 08 low levels, uh, but pretty, pretty, pretty close. low. Pretty low. You know, one chart I saw this past week, and it almost made my cut for the podcast, was a housing versus rent affordability comparison going back about, I think it was Ooh, that's interesting. 15, 20 years. Okay. Okay, I'll bring it up in the next podcast since you brought this up. And we now have the biggest spread or difference between the cost to buy a home and service that mortgage with where interest rates and prices are at mm -hmm. versus what rent is going for a similar property and I want to say in all these metropolitan areas that they have, that they follow in this data set, and Aaron, it's probably 30 major metropolitan okay. areas, there were only two where it was more economical to buy really? than it rent. was to rent. Interesting. That's, that's very surprising. Yeah, you'll have to bring that up in the next podcast. I will. I'll bring it. I'll, it's, it Jenna, it's now made the cut. <laughs> it went from a no to a yes. Interesting. All right. Um, building permits. So she goes on to say new residential building permits continue to slow in April for the second straight month. Building permits provide a sense of future construction activity and therefore serve as a key indicator of housing market demand. So um, last month, building permits fell 1.5% uh, from March to seasonally adjusted annual rate of 1.4 million units. The latest reading was below expectations of 1.437 million units. Permits are down 21% compared to one year ago, making marking the ninth consecutive month of annual declines. I think it goes hand in hand with interest rates, right? Absolutely, so. and I think that, you know, you've seen a lot of these input costs, such as lumber. I mean, um, if listeners are really curious on the price of what, you know, lumber's trading at, the raw commodity of it, go to stockcharts.com, mm -hmm. type in money sign lumber, and you can get the chart. Absolutely. And you can see, you know, where it's been the last couple of years and where it's at now. That's come in significantly. It has. And so, you know, what's the biggest issue right now? Cost of raw land is still high mm -hmm. in a lot of these places where they're building. Absolutely. And the other factor, as you said, interest, interest rates. rates. So one that's interesting is housing starts. So this is the last, last thing I'll mention out of this article. Is housing starts rebounded by 2.2% in April to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 1.4 million units. A deeper look at the data show that single family homes and multifamily units bounce back by 1.6% and 5.2% respectively. So the traction gain this month reflects consumers increased attention to new construction housing amid limited inventory and in existing homes. It's like where else you gotta go, right? Yep. You, there's nothing for sale, so I guess I gotta build, yep. right? So um, pretty interesting to see, um, see that change and kind of rotation out of the COVID demand where everybody was trying to buy a house and um, everyone was trying to do renovations, supply. home exactly. upgrades. 
Yeah, I mean, even look at Home Depot's, uh, is not a recommendation for or against them. They had earnings recently, and they were talking and about how they're starting to see some slowing demand on home mm-hmm. renovations. Absolutely. And a lot of it has to do with what, again, like you just said, right. higher interest rates. Yeah, exactly. You know? Okay. So pretty interesting stuff. So I think we'll I'd be curious to see what interest rate trends continue. Um, I'm kind of optimistic. I think we're, we're going to pause here, but I, uh, I won't steal your thunder on the, your, your next pieces here. Yeah, I got some good ones here. So first one I have is real-time inflation data. And in, in the key term here, Aaron, real-time. Yeah. I want to introduce our, um, our listeners and our viewers to a, a research firm that caught my eye over the past week called Trueflation, T-R-U-F-L-A-T-I-O-N. You can Google search this. And what they're doing, Aaron, is they are using real-time data to develop an equivalent consumer price index type of number, Mm -hmm. but it changes daily. It's supposed to provide a year over year accurate number. And there's a lot of amazing. It's really cool. And so um, Jenna will put this chart up. It's gonna show um, a tweet that compares right now US inflation to UK inflation. But what I like about the US is it's overlaying the monthly, or I should say, Aaron, the latest monthly mm-hmm. consumer price index report, which was inflation coming in at plus 4.9% year over year. Now, if you compare that with their basket of real-time data, they're indicating it should be closer to around 3.03%. Yeah. So then I got curious, <laughs> okay? So then I'm like, hmm, I wonder where this data was last year. So. Jenna's going to put this chart up for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes. This is a chart from Trueflation going back a year. And what you're going to see a year ago is they were showing inflation peaked at 12%, where the way the government was calculating inflation last year at that time mm-hmm. was about 9 Right. Okay? That's a So now you see it's like, okay, they're, they're showing it higher at that time than what was being reported. And now you kind of have the opposite as this data is lagging, right? And so the last thing that I'd like uh, for Jenna to show is is a chart of their methodology, okay? And their methodology is, in essence, their weightings, Aaron, Mm -hmm. of this real-time data. And so I'm going to throw out a couple of examples of some of the bigger ones. Housing, 23.3%. Transportation, 19.8%. Food and non-alcoholic beverages, 15.3. Utilities, 5.9. Housing durable, 7.2, et cetera. Okay? I love this. Uh, they, n- they mentioned some of their real-time data partners, J.D. Power, Zillow, Trulia, Car Genius, AAA. Um, there's a couple others. EIA, has to do with oil and gas. Um, Opus, which is a part of IHS market. Mm-hmm. So... Pretty interesting, huh? It's great. It's it's uh, it's really really interesting. I had not heard of this until you brought it up. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it just kind of caught my eye recently. Okay. All right. Next thing is I got some raw stats from Bespoke. Bespoke's being talked about a lot in the podcast yes, today. Okay. So this is a chart that caught my eye, Aaron, from May seventeenth. Let me read this first. Okay. We put the first chart out below a number of times, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, number of times toward the end of last year to highlight just how rough 2022 was on the U.S. equity market investors. It shows the percentage of up days for the S&P 500 over a rolling 12-month period going back to the early 1950s when the current five-day trading week began on the NYSE. That's the New York Stock Exchange. 
Historically, 53% of all trading days have been up days looking back in history. In the waning days of 2022, only 42.8% of trading days over the previous 12 months had been up days, Aaron. Wow. While that may not seem like such a big divergence, you can see how much of an outlier it is on this chart. Jenna will put up this chart uh, for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes. Readings as low as we saw late last year have only occurred a handful of times over the past 70 years. And they usually come at the tail end of a, and I qu I'm quoting still, <laughs> a nasty bear market for the S&P. That's a good way of saying uh, that's it. That's fair. Nasty. <laughs> so far in 2023, just over half of all trading days have been up days, which has lifted the percentage up days over the past 12 months to 46%. Remember, in history, it's 53. Yeah. Yes, things are looking better. I love this chart because it puts things into perspective. It really does. It, it kind of shows you just how bad last just year was. Just how bad it was. Right. All right, I'm going to continue. Paraphrasing still. Interestingly, Fridays, Aaron, have been the best day of the year for the market so far in 23. Now, this is where I got hooked because <laughs> I read this first sentence, okay? Mm -hmm. And so I'll just keep reading because what they said is exactly what I thought. With the S&P 500 averaging a gain of 34 basis points or 0.34% on the last trading day of the week. Hmm. From a sentiment perspective, we think it's bullish to see strength on Fridays because it indicates a willingness among traders to own over the weekend. Yeah, you're holding two, really two extra days. You got that risk. What mm -hmm. could happen over the weekend? Then the market could open up really down on Monday and you're holding those stocks. There's buying into a weekend. It's kind, that, of, it's kind of odd, to be honest with you. You know, it's, it's like, yeah. well, especially the last couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> that just tells you that, you know, man, there's, there's a little more strength in this market than people are giving credit. Yeah, and going back to your sentiment indicator. Okay. Remember, this Friday strength has come uh, during a five-plus-month period where we've had some major weekend bank failures as well. Additionally, Mondays have been the second best day of the week so far this year, with the S&P averaging a gain of 17 basis points the first trading day of the week. Now, Jenna's going to put up the chart that shows these average changes by weekday for 2023. It'll show Monday's positive 0.17%, uh, Tuesday negative uh, 13 basis points, Wednesday negative 11 basis points, Thursday positive 16 basis points, and Friday positive 30. It's interesting because you usually think about turnaround Tuesday, right? Turnaround Tuesday. That's not a thing right now. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> guess I'd love Bespoke to do something that's like in a nasty market. Turnaround Tuesday might not be, I guess, might not be the thing. Might not be a good indicator, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I want to save some time. I, I, I'm going to do it real quick. They have one more piece on this. Another trend that they thought was interesting relates to market volatility on Fridays. Over the last 52 weeks, the percentage of 1% plus moves on Friday stands at 58%. Wow. That's a lot of volatility to end the trading week. Jenna's gonna put the last chart up for our YouTube viewers, okay? This chart, this reading actually hit a record high in March, dating back to 1954, wow. meaning we have never seen a higher percentage a plus one percent moves in either direction on Fridays on a rolling one year period ever. This chart has begun to come down since its peak of 59.6% in mid March 
As we pointed out in the chart, prior peaks from this reading on Friday market volatility occurred in May 2009. What, after, what happened after that? A really strong bull market. Really strong bull market that started <laughs> that years. lasted over a decade. <laughs> September 2001 and June of 1975. And here's a final stat for you that may leave you yearning for pre-COVID markets again, <laughs> unless you need volatility to make a living, they joke. <laughs> From late 2016 to early 2018, the S&P actually went 70 Fridays in a row without experiencing wow. a move of plus 1% gain or decline. I love this chart. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. All right, my last piece is going to be really quick. This is from Ryan Dietrich. This is dated uh, May 18th. He had a chart that uh, what happens to the NASDAQ going back in history when the NASDAQ 100 index makes a new 52-week high for the first time uh, in nearly 18 months. And so when you look at, um, and I want to correct myself there, NASDAQ 100 makes a 52-week high after more than six months without making one. Wow. Hasn't made one in 18 it's, months. Yep. So I want to throw it out there on average 12 months later, there's about what, 12, 13 data set points? Mm -hmm. The average gain one year later is around 15%. Love that. Chart will be in our show notes. I just think it's really interesting. Raw data. It's pretty, it's pretty telling. I like it. like it a lot. So, uh, Aaron, before we have Taylor on for the financial planning topic of the week, I'll let you finish up. It's on your I, mind. I'm good. I think it, it was uh, some really uh, positive-looking data points that you pulled there. It's, um, I think that with, like I mentioned, sentiment being so low and as cash comes in uh, back into the market, I think it could be a, a strong couple of years. I mean, the market's already been stealthy strong this year compared to the news lines, headlines mm -hmm. you're seeing, the sentiment readings you're seeing. And again, it just kind of sets up for this kind of stealth, kind of two-step forward, one-step back, melt up, you know, mm -hmm. use the, the description that you think is appropriate. Just be careful here because, you know, stocks got way oversold last year. Keep an eye on profitability, and that will help you, I think, delineate Absolutely. A lot of these price performance, yep. forward-looking guidance. Yeah. All right. All right. We'll have Taylor on. Aaron, as awesome. always, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. So next up uh, for our viewers and listeners is our financial planning topic of the week. Taylor Ledbetter, she's a wealth advisor with Jessup Wealth Management, um, focuses on a lot of financial planning work internally for the firm and our client base. So you are extremely qualified to lead us in the next section of the podcast. Welcome, Taylor. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's been a little bit since I've been on. She's back. <laughs> so what do you got for listeners and viewers this week? Yeah, so today I just want to talk about retirement planning through the decades, so over your life. Mm -hmm. Things I would recommend or not recommend, things mm -hmm. I would maybe focus on a little bit throughout more. the years. Mm -hmm. All right, take it away. So first, we're just going to start with when you're in your 20s. Now, these recommendations are pretty simplistic. Um, while you're in your 20s, I think it's really important to start contributing to retirement accounts. A lot of 20-year-olds don't, which Correct. is okay, but it will really give you a big head start the earlier you start saving mm -hmm. um, and making sure you're investing as aggressive as you can as well. You know, the idea is that when you're in your 20s, you don't need money in your accounts anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So it's okay if you see those day-to-day -day fluctuations if the account is a little more aggressive. And especially if you're getting the account going, you know, if you have a year like 2022, if you're young, you should be celebrating that. 
hey, I can keep putting money in, buy these shares cheaper, whether it's a mutual fund or a stock. And again, you had that proper long-term time horizon. It makes sense to me, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the short term, returns may vary, but like you said, over the long run, the yeah, returns decades. will be much better. Yeah, absolutely. Other comment that comes to mind here is, you know, back in the day when I got started in the business, you know, matches or profit sharing contributions weren't as popular as they are today inside employer-sponsored retirement plans. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you have a lot of employers who are putting money in to these employer-sponsored plans, Taylor, even if the participant does not. Mm -hmm. And so that gives them an opportunity that if they feel like they can't afford to save themselves, mm -hmm. you get a lot of employers who are putting in money for them now. Yeah, and to kind of add on to that, um, some employers have Roth options for okay. their employees. Yep. And that was my next point is utilizing a Roth, especially when you're really young, because you're probably in the lowest tax bracket you'll ever be in for the rest of your life. So it's best to pay taxes at a much lower rate now rather than later on. It's an important point. Can you just take 30 seconds and describe the difference between a pre-tax traditional contribution versus a Roth for our newer listeners. Mm -hmm. So a Roth contribution is whatever you're putting into that account, you're paying taxes now and it grows completely tax-free and will be tax-free income when you retire. Correct. And the pre-tax accounts work the opposite. You're not paying taxes on those contributions. You're deferring that for later on. So when you withdraw that money, when you retire, you'll owe tax. Thank you. Um, so next, I'm just gonna move into when you're in your 30s. So even if you haven't started contributing to retirement accounts, it's still a good time to start. I wouldn't delay it any later because then you might have to play some catch up. Mm -hmm. um, and as you get older, you have more financial obligations, so it will get harder. Yep. Um, and something else, I thought this was really interesting you know, you meet with people who are a little bit older, they maybe changed jobs, and at their prior employers, they've actually cashed out their 401ks instead of rolling it over into a new account or a new employer plan. Correct. And that really has a huge impact because, I mean, not only will you be paying taxes, but there's also a early withdrawal penalty for that too. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to think about all the compound interest that you could be missing out. Absolutely. Well said. Um, and also we've seen people take 401k loans, which does have a similar effect. Um, so I think that should be kind of your last option. I agree. In the 30 seconds I have on 401k loans, this is how I want people to view it through this lens, Taylor. I want them to view it as you are delaying your retirement by taking them. Mm -hmm. Because I think the perception is, well, Taylor, I'm paying myself back with interest. I'm not hurting myself. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is you're having that money come out of the market and you're paying it back in usually over five years. Mm -hmm. And as you discussed earlier about missing out on the compounding effect of that money not being in the market, earning, which could be, a higher return than your interest you're paying yourself back. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're telling yourself, okay, I was on target to retire at 60. This 401k loan's not going to put me at 62 or 63. Mm -hmm. And if you sit down with your future 60 year old self, that extra two or three years is significant, mm -hmm. significant. Yeah. And you know, people take different 
loan amounts, but it really can have years, years difference. It could for impact your it that drastically. Age. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating. That's, yeah. that's truth. Hashtag truth, Jenna. <laughs> Um, So just moving on to some tips when you're in your 40s, I wanted to talk or touch on the lifestyle creep. I'm sure we've talked about this on the podcast before, but you know, as you get older, you have more income, more flexibility, and people tend to spend more rather than save more. So I think a good rule of thumb to go by is once a year or every time you get a raise, try to increase contributions by just a little bit. Um, That way, over time, that contribution rate is going up and you barely notice it. Well said. You know, I kind of call it the plus 1% strategy. I know we all kind of have that internally here at the firm. They do it 1% a year, they're they're really not going to notice. No. Especially around when they get any sort of raises, Mm -hmm, right? Exactly. Um, In your 40s, it's also a good time to maybe have a financial plan done or just run some retirement calculations Yep. just so you can kind of get a picture for where your your current habits and and strategies are taking you to Mm -hmm. because you want to make sure you're on track. I mean, some people might think, oh, I want to retire at 60 and then maybe we run a plan for them and it's going to be more like 65. No, you're right. And then the question is, is, hey, I want it to be 60, Taylor. What do I need to do differently? Mm-hmm. And then you start going down that road. Yep, right? exactly. Um, so something else to add on to when you're in your 40s, this is an interesting point too. I think some people have to choose between saving more for their retirement and then maybe paying college for kids. Mm-hmm. And I know that could be a really hard decision to make. Yes, But I think the way to look at it is if you are saving for retirement and your kids are paying for their own college, then they're not going to have to take care of you later on down the road. Yes. um, This, what I'm about to say might come across controversial, but this is what I see in the couple decades I've been doing this. I'll be going into my 24th year in the industry coming up this August. More often than not, the people that are kind of really close on their retirement planning and then they choose to prioritize paying for 100% of their children's college, I've seen it significantly delay when they're able to retire. Mm -hmm. That's a personal decision. I'm not judging that. Mm -hmm. But you just have to be realistic about the decision that you are, in fact, making. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, from a a numbers perspective, obviously it would benefit you the most to make yourself a priority. I mean, you know, going to college and graduating debt-free is a huge advantage, but at the end of the day, your retirement is most important. And where the concern comes in for me is, you know, they have these people where they may have very physical labor-intensive jobs, and while it might seem that, you know, at 40 or 45 or 50, oh yeah, I could keep doing that. You know, Mm -hmm. you and I and Aaron, we have the boots on the ground experience of sitting down with these people in their you know, late 50s, early 60s, and what are they usually telling us? I love my coworkers, I love what I do, I can't physically keep doing this. Mm-hmm. And then you're retrospectively looking back at life and saying, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done X, Y, Z. Yeah, and it's sad because I've even seen people who are like almost 70 doing jobs like that, but they just can't retire quite yet. Yeah. Again, we're not judging. We're just trying to instill mm-hmm. what we've seen, boots on the ground. And you're talking about people in their 40s. So that's why we're trying to give the yeah. targeted advice to this group right now. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, so next, I kind of lumped in your 50s and your 60s together. So these tips are, are pretty simplistic. You know, once you reach age 50, there are what's called catch-up contributions for, you know, Roth IRAs, IRAs, 401ks, just different type of accounts. It basically allows you to contribute more than the annual limit for everybody else. So maybe if you did start saving later, the catch-up contribution is a great tool to use. Um, obviously, as you do get closer to retirement age, you should start to be more conservative with your investments, but that's definitely on an individualistic basis. That's a very general, I mean, it makes yeah. sense too, though. That's a very good, broad generalization. You know, it, it, it's going to be, you know, I'll, I'll use the pun, it's a little aggressive going into retirement 100% equity, right? Mm -hmm. Pun intended. Yeah. Some people do it, though. Aaron but... will love that one. Um, I also see when you're in your 50s, a lot of people like to focus on paying off debt. Yes. Maybe even more than saving extra for retirement. And it's great to go into retirement debt-free. I know that provides a lot of comfort. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes it is best to maybe put more money in the retirement accounts versus paying off debt. And I think a good example right now, Taylor, is all these people that locked in these mortgages at say sub three and a half, four percent interest rates. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, you got a sub three percent mortgage. Generally speaking, that's not my priority to pay that sucker down early. Right. Because you could point. earn much more in the market. Yeah. Than what you e would save. E even in cash right now, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, so um, just the last couple of things I have, uh, health insurance, that's something people need to think about if they're retiring before 65. Correct, ma'am. Because Medicare doesn't kick in until 65. Correct. Um, and private insurance can be very expensive. Yes, it can. So, you got uh, the budget for it, right? Yeah, so you have to budget for that, plan for that if you plan on retiring before 65. Um, and then also just planning for Social Security. The earliest you can take it is age 62. Yep. Um, you receive your full benefit at age 66, 67, depending on your birthday. Correct. Um, and then for every year you delay retirement past your full retirement age, mm -hmm. your benefit actually goes up about 8% every year. That's right. And, and that, that can make a significant difference. Mm -hmm. And that stops at age 70. Correct. And then you have to take it at that point. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So those were just kind of the little tips I wanted to... I thought it was Cover. great. Yeah, I, I thought, thought it was great. A nice round table between us. Um, anything you want to leave and sign off with the podcast with this week? No, just waiting for the market to turn around a little bit. This week's been down. Rough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the debt ceiling, get past that, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the next kind of major focus on the market. All right, well, I'll, I'll sign us off then, Taylor. So uh, thank you, uh, listeners and viewers, to listening to episode 202 of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Uh, myself, Aaron Kramer, Taylor Ledbetter, we appreciate you uh, listening, and we hope all of you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website site. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions,